Hebrews chapter 2 and the verse 9 I want to leave with you tonight. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Crowned with glory and honour. The verse commences, we see Jesus. The question must be asked, What do we see when we see Jesus? As a Christian, what is the most dominant view that we ought to have of the Lord Jesus Christ? Undoubtedly, we can have many views of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're all biblical views. We could see him in the manger. We could see him in his earthly ministry. We can see him on the cross. We can see him in the tomb. We can see him ascending. But I think the chief dominant view of Jesus that we ought to have is the one that is referred to in the text. And that is, we see Jesus, underline that, but then the next word to underline is crowned. We see Jesus crowned. That's the dominant thought. That's the climax to which the Apostle is bringing us. And that's the true, biblical, saving view of Jesus Christ. He is not viewed on the cross still hanging. He is not viewed in the tomb still lying. He is viewed crowned. Crowned with glory and honour and seated at the right hand of the power on high. So the proper view of Christ is as the crowned one, the crowned Jesus, the crowned Saviour. And that's what we want to think about tonight. First of all then, crowned. We see Jesus crowned. And by this act of crowning, Because you can't be crowned until someone crowns you. So there's an act of crowning. And by this act of crowning, a royal dignity is conferred on Jesus Christ. Someone who is crowned is a king. And by their crowning, they are declared to be a king. Remember how the Bible says, Behold King Solomon with the crown." wherewith his mother crowned him. How do we know it's King Solomon? He has the crown. And the same is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the crown. Now this is fundamental. We don't have a saviour at all, you know, unless he's a crown saviour. We can't have a saviour to save us unless he is a kingly saviour. It is only as a kingly saviour that he can save us. And there's no salvation. There's no going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb if this is not true, if he's not a king. In fact, there's going to be no second coming. There's going to be no second advent unless he is a king, crowned. So this is fundamental that we now have a crown, Jesus, 
reigning in the heavens. And I emphasize that is now. The apostle is not saying we see Jesus someday to be crowned. No, he's saying we see Jesus crowned. He's crowned now when he writes. 2,000 years later, it's still the same view of Jesus. He's still crowned. He hasn't lost it. So this is the true view of Jesus Christ our Lord. And there can be no compromise in this. Because the humiliation of Christ is over. It's past. It's not only past, it's non-repeatable. He will never be in a state of humiliation again. He has entered into a state of exaltation. And he entered into that when he entered into his glory. And he is still in that state of exaltation today. And it must be stressed that this crowning follows Christ's death. What does it say there? Made a little alone the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor. So it took place after his death. Remember how the Lord Jesus said, Ought not Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? So the crowning comes after his death. The exaltation follows the humiliation. He humbled himself to the cross and then God hath highly exalted him to the crown. And that's the position he is in now. So the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow is what the Old Testament prophecies are all about. And now that's what we're in. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that follows. We're in that age now. We're not waiting for that age to come. That's the age that we're in now. The sufferings are past and he's in the glory, enjoying the glory, enjoying the crown now at the right hand of God. And for 2,000 years, the Lord Jesus Christ has been enjoying that state of glory and of exaltation. And we don't know how long he may continue to enjoy it before he comes back again. But it will never be taken away from him. He'll never be humbled again. He is crowned now. That's the story now. You understand what I'm saying tonight? We're not waiting for Jesus to get the crown. He's not coming again at the end of the world to get it. There are some people who seem to teach that. That he has to come back again to get the crown. That he has to come back again to get the throne. That he has to come back again to get exalted. That's not true. He is not going to descend to Jerusalem to get it. He has it now. And he got it at the ascension. And he is king now. Just as truly as when the Romans put the mocking crown on his head. In his humiliation. So truly the father has put the crown of glory on his head. In his exaltation. As the Bible says. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life of thee and thou gavest it him. Even length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation and honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. That, that goes beyond David. That prophecy goes beyond anything that David 
experienced. That prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. A crown of pure gold is on his head. And that's not earthly gold. That's not gold that you can find in this world. That's heavenly gold. Heavenly glory. The same glory that paves heaven's streets. The street of the city was pure gold. As it were transparent glass. And that's the kind of crown that Jesus has on his head today. And to get another crown in that place, it would always be a lower crown. He has the highest crown of all, a crown of pure gold. And he doesn't have to come back again to get it. That's not what the second coming is about. The second coming is not about getting a crown. He has it now. He's by the right hand of God, exalted. Now he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now is on his head, as Revelation says, many crowns. And now he has a name written that no man knows but he himself. He has it now. So congregation, don't let any of us ever have any doubts about this. Let no Christian have any doubts concerning the royalty of Jesus Christ in heaven's glory at this present time. In fact, I don't think any one of us could even be a Christian if we didn't know Jesus as King. Whenever we received the Lord Jesus, we received him in all his offices as prophet, priest, and king. And we couldn't be a Christian if we didn't receive Jesus as King. We couldn't really be a Christian if we didn't believe he was crowned and had this royal dignity and the Father had set him on his holy hill of Zion. And so this is a very fundamental truth. The one who has the crown is Jesus Christ. And the one who has crowned him, of course, is the Father. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. And it's the same hand that made him lower than the angels. It was the same hand that humbled him. It was the same hand that gave him the humanity. It was the same hand that led him to the cross. The same hand that imputed all of our sins onto him when he died for us. It was that same hand that smote him that also exalted him and gave him the crown whenever he ascended. The Father did that. Christ didn't glorify himself, but the Father glorified him. As Psalm 110 says, the main text, as I think Paul is using here, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make all thine enemies thy footstool. And that's happening now. We're in the session now of Jesus Christ at God's right hand. So I remind you, none of the angels are wearing this. That's what this is all about. None of the angels have this glory. None of the angels have this crown. It is Christ alone that is crowned. Throughout this book, this epistle, that's one thing you can never forget. You have to keep it in the back of your mind. Paul will bring it in now and again, but he's really getting it hammered into our minds at the start that this is the place that Christ has. Before he comes to talk about him being the priest in the heavenly sanctuary, he is telling us he's the king there too in the heavenly sanctuary. And he is the one who rules over all. So that's where Paul starts with the kingly office before he goes on to the priestly office of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's following Psalm 110. He's the king at the start of Psalm 110. 
And then we read about a priest after the order of Melchizedek, later on down Psalm 110. Uh, the apostle is following that order through his preaching in this epistle to the Hebrews. Well, perhaps you ask then, is the second coming not his glory? Not his getting the glory when he comes? Is he not coming to receive glory then in the, in the second coming? Some people say that, but that, that's not true. And that's the wrong way to describe it. He is not coming to receive glory. He has it now. There are some Christians who who nearly seem to think that Christ is in a state of humiliation still. And that he has to do some other new work to fix that. He has to come back again to fix that and to deal with this state of humiliation. And he has to return. That's the wrong way to look at it. The second coming is not another work. Jesus Christ has finished his work. Jesus Christ has entered into his race. Jesus Christ has sat down on his throne of glory. The work is done, it's completed. And the second coming is not another work. The second coming is the visible manifestation to all creation that he has the glory and is the king. That's what the second coming is about. It's about manifestation. It's about appearing. It's about being seen to have the glory. He's coming in the glory to manifest it. He's not coming to get it, to receive it. It's going to be seen in his appearing. And that's what the second coming is about. We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. Of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's what he is now. He's a glorious great God. And he's our glorious great Saviour. But not everybody sees that. But when he comes back again. Everybody's going to see that. It's going to be visible. So the second coming is just about. The manifestation of the glory. That he is already presently enjoying in heaven. And so the the appearing is the kingdom consummated and the king's complete visibility to all creatures, both saved and lost. Now we as Christians, we see that glory now. We don't have to wait till he comes because we see it now. We see it by faith now. We believe the Bible. And we grasp the reality of it by faith. As the Bible says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the Lord Jesus has that glory now. Well, maybe you ask then, well, why is he taking so long to manifest it? Why 2,000 years to manifest it? And we don't know how many more years before he manifests it. Why is he taking so long? Why can't he just appear and show his glory? Well, he can't, you see, congregation, because all his elect have not been brought in. All his people have not been brought in. All his people have not been saved. We're in the last days. The apostle says that. We're in the last days now. And they've lasted 2,000 years, but they're still the last days. There's really nothing more to happen until the end. Because now he's gathering in his seed. Now he's gathering in his people. Now he's bringing the many sons that Paul goes on later to speak about. 
He's bringing the many sons to glory. And that takes time. Because a whole lot of them haven't been born yet. And so there is this necessity of the time span, the last days, in order to bring in all the seed, all the people of God, all the same. Because he's not willing that any should perish. And he's long-suffering, he's waiting long, so that none of them perish. So that they're all brought in, so that they'll all be there in heaven, that he's planned and ordained. And that, of course, you know that a thousand years is one day to the Lord, and one day is a thousand years. It doesn't really matter to the Lord to span. seems like a long time to us, two thousand years, but it's nothing to the Lord who's enjoying this, this glory. So the glory is now, but the full manifestation is not yet. And so the theologians, they talk about the now, the not yet. And that's a true biblical way of talking about things. He's in the glory now, but it's not yet been manifested to all creatures. And all his enemies haven't been made as footstool yet, because you see, there's a whole lot of enemies that haven't even been born yet. Antichrist, the last Antichrist, for all we know, he hasn't even been born yet. So there has to be this waiting until all the enemies are under the footstool. All the enemies in the time of the duration of our world are under his footstool. It takes time. And that's, I think, one of the main reasons why the Lord delays his coming in his, in his long-suffering till they're all brought in as people. And you have to remember, sinner, that you now are in this day of salvation and this is your opportunity to be saved. This is the time of acceptance, the Bible says. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Because there's a king who wears a crown, he's mighty to save, he's willing to save, he's able to save, and you have to believe in him, you have to come to him now. Now in the day of, day of grace. Now in the last days. You have time now. And don't leave it too late. So there's a glorious saviour. A crown king. Mighty to save. And he, he reigns in heaven. Now notice secondly. Not only crowned. But what does it say there in the text? Crowned with glory. And also with honour. With glory. And with honour. Not just glory alone, but also honour with it. There are these two gems that are in his crown. And we have to think about that, these two gems. Why does the apostle say that? Glory and honour. And in the Bible, whenever you study these words, and they're really very similar words, it's hard to get the distinction between them. I'll come to it in a moment, what I think it might be. Generally, it's, they're quite closely related, synonyms. They are telling us that he has all glory. He has a double glory. He has special glory. In the Bible, honor and glory are often brought together. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. And you see these words combined in the book of the Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory. There you have the two words again. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. There you have the two words again. So they're frequently applied to Jesus Christ in his present reign, in his present glory. He is the one who receives these. He is the one who is worthy of these. Now, 
he did receive foretastes of them on earth. Glory and honor. I think you, you see that when you study the Gospels. He, he did get little foretastes that encouraged his soul as he went to the cross. You remember how the shepherds, the angels appeared. They gave the angelic message. And then the, all the angels were singing about glory to God. That was a little foretaste of the kind of glory and honor that's going to be identified with Jesus Christ. And they went off to Mary. And no doubt they related the story to Mary. And Mary kept all them things in her heart. And no doubt she told her son about them too. So he had foretaste of, of the glory and honor. And then you remember at his baptism that he was praying and then heaven was open to him and he saw the Holy Ghost coming down in a bodily shape upon him. And then there was a voice from the accident glory. There was a voice and it said, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was a little taste of the glory and honor of heaven. And then you remember at the transfiguration, especially at the transfiguration, and Peter, interestingly, he refers to the transfiguration in his first epistle, and he describes it thus. He received from God the Father glory and honor. Now, Peter knows very well that Jesus Christ has glory and honor whenever he was crowned at the right hand of the Father. But he sensed that the transfiguration was a foretaste of that, was a forerunner of that. And so he says that he received from God the Father honor and glory, Whenever there came that day the voice from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So he had foretastes of it, and especially at his transfiguration, whenever the glory shone through and the Father gave that revelation of it. But chiefly, the crowning with glory and honor was whenever he ascended and was ushered in through all the angelic hosts and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high whenever the Lord crowned him then with glory and honor. That's when he chiefly, primarily received it as the God-man at the right hand of the Father. Now, the, the distinctions between glory and honor, as I said, it's not easy to, to get that. They are similar words. But I, I think there is a slight distinction. And I think that the first word, glory, is a dignity that he receives in himself, a dignity that he has from God the Father that can't be given by anybody else. It's God's glory given to him. It's something special. It's something that a creature can't have, a mere creature. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of all of heaven. And it's conferred on him. Heaven's highest glory, befitting his dignity as the God-man. Remember the Lord Jesus in his great prayer in John 17, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So this is something direct from God. This is divine glory, direct from the Father, such as only the Son can receive in the nature of a man. The glory that is from God. Glorious, divine glory. And none of the angels could ever receive that. Now, honor, on the other hand, is what God gives to him that he is to get from all other creatures. Honor is, is esteem. It's reverence. It's something that creatures give. Yes, the Father bestows it upon him, 
so that he is allowed to receive this honor from, from creatures. So glory is something direct from God, the divine glory coming upon him, but the honor is that which is given to him whereby he is open to receive all the worship of angels and of men. He's honored by the Father to receive that. So there is that slight distinction. God hath exalted him, and in exalting him, he hath made him to be the one who's honored and revered and feared and loved and believed in and worshipped. And I think what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, is a good illustration of this distinction. God hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. And that's the dignity. He's exalted, he's given a name, he's given a heavenly name, he's given the highest name that anybody could ever receive. That at that name, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. So he's been given this glory so that he might receive all this honor of every knee bowing before him. That's what Jesus Christ has received. Angels didn't receive that. They got no divine glory. Now they came with the accompaniment sometimes of divine glory. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. But they didn't receive the glory. They didn't have it inherently placed in them the way Christ did. And they certainly aren't allowed to be worshipped. They didn't receive that honor whereby they may be worshipped. Only Christ receives that glory and that honor. And that's why the apostle is saying this. So he gets the glory of divine kingship and is due all the honor that that glory deserves. Faith and trust and worship. Now the last thing, the third thing that I want to deal with tonight is that this crowning is not just ceremonial. It's not an empty sign that has crowned him with glory and honor. An empty sign, a powerless thing, as if it doesn't mean anything until he comes back again and then somehow it's going to get zapped to some power and he's going to get it all then. It's not ceremonial. Awaiting some future time when he'll get all the glory of it. No, he's got all that he's to get in the glory of it. It's real. It's a real glory. It's a real honor. It's a real ceremony conveying unto him, as he said, all power is given unto me. He's not waiting to get that power. It has been given to him now. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is evidence of that. And the people are being saved is evidence of that. So that crowning is true and real. And it's a real session of God's right hand. And it's a real and true rule over all principalities and powers. And he has everything under his feet. What does it say there in chapter 2 verse 7? Did set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. So Christ has all things under his feet. And that dominion is without limit because it says there in verse 8, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. There's nothing excluded. Everything is put under him. Everything on earth, everything in the heavens, it's all put under him. And it has to be real and powerful now. And it can't wait until the last day to become real. You know why? For a very simple reason. To bring sinners into the benefits of his death. He has to be crowned. He has to be king. We can only be saved by a king. And if he's not wearing a crown. He can't save us. 
There are no benefits from his death at all if he wasn't crowned on his ascension. He is crowned to bring to us the benefits of his death. This is what the apostle is really saying here. To be a saviour, he must be crowned after his death. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The order of the words here are very interesting by the apostle. We expect him to put that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We expect him to put that before crowned with glory and honour. He doesn't do that. And the reason why he doesn't do that, he's telling us that these sons who will be brought to glory will not be brought to glory without his power. And the benefits of his having tasted death will be of no use to them unless he's crowned, unless he's a king. So he's crowned with glory and honour in order that this, his tasting of death, his bitter experience of death, may by the grace of God redound to the benefit of every man. Every man will only benefit from this if he's crowned with glory and honour. He's shed his blood, he's made atonement for sin, but he can only impart the benefits of that if he's a king, if he's ruling and reigning, if he has all power. And so people are being saved because he's a king conveying the benefits of that bitter experience of his death to them, to every man. Now, every man is not everybody who's ever been born in the world. It's to every man that are among the sons that he's bringing to glory, so that not one of them is lost. It's his people. Because this was a real, true experience that the Lord Jesus entered into on their behalf. And it was vicarious. It was substitutionary. And he will confer the benefit of his death. Because he's all power. And that's why he's waiting there 2,000 years. Because the last man to receive of the benefit of his death has not been brought in yet. But when the last man is brought in. And when the last enemy raises its ugly head for the last time. That's the time. When the iniquity of, of the world has come to its full. And all the enemies are there under his feet. And there's not one more to be put there then he'll stand on them. All his enemies. So they're all under his feet now. But they haven't all been born yet. Just because they're not crushed doesn't mean they're not under his feet. They're all under his feet. Even though we don't see it, doesn't the apostle say here we don't see all things under his feet now? What does that mean? Well, there are some who think it means that it's not really all under his feet at all, but one day it will be. Well, that's not what it means. What it means is we don't see with our visible eyes. We don't see everything under his feet. I mean, they're out there protesting to have their, their sodomy rights. They're out there proud and arrogant about their abortion rights. They don't look like they're under his feet. We don't see all things under his feet. But they are under his feet. He hasn't crushed them. But they are under his feet. And that's the way it is with Christ. He, he always has the glory. He always has them under his feet. But we can't just see it the way that we, we would like to. That is coming again, the consummation. It will be seen by all. It will be visible then. So Christ has all things under his feet. We know that because the Bible says that. He raised him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that world which is to come, 
and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Paul wrote that to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago. It was true then, it's true today. All things are under his feet. They're really and truly there, even if it doesn't look like it at times, just because they haven't been Christianed. The fact that they're under his feet is a different thing from his standing on them and crushing them. The standing on them and crushing them is the last day. But they're all under his feet now in the power of his death and resurrection when he crushed Satan's head. If you read Psalm 2, it doesn't look like they're under his feet. The heathen are raging. The people are imagining a vain thing. The kings of the earth are setting themselves together, making counsel together against the Lord and against Christ. Let's break their bonds. Let's cast away their ropes from us. I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's what God says. He laughs at them. The little locusts on the earth in their rebellion. He laughs at them and, and, and in his derision then he speaks to them. And then he vexes them in his holy displeasure. I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. But the day is coming when it will be manifested. When it will be seen that all things are under his feet. That's the last day. Again I say, well, why is the Lord tarrying? It's because the human race has not yet grown to its full extent. That's the only reason. Christ's seed is not yet complete. He hasn't seen it all. His elect are not all brought in yet. The kingdom has not yet reached that outer limits which was given to him. But whenever the human race is complete and whenever the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in, and whenever all Israel has been saved, then the king will come out of Zion. Then shall come out of Zion the king of glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, not before, whenever he has completed his Zion, whenever he has completed his church, when he builds up Zion, then shall he appear in his glory. Then it will be seen when Christ who is our life shall appear. Then shall you also appear with him in glory. All the saints with him in glory. Not one lost. Not one perished. And so if you're not a Christian tonight, you must come and submit to his lordship. You must come and kiss the son. And put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And you must receive him as your prophet, your priest, and especially your king your Lord and your Savior. So if you're unconverted, I have to call upon you to humble yourself before him and to put away your rebellion against him and to bow before him and to receive him as your Lord and seek his abundant grace and mercy. And as the Bible says, blessed are all they that trust in him. And you people of God, you keep on seeing him by faith. And don't doubt for one minute his royal authority and his omnipotent power. Mighty to save. So worship him, your king.